Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com coming to you almost as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Now it's been three weeks since the last TMR podcast. I'm surprised by that, but it is in fact the case. I had hoped to get this particular episode out last week, but trying to deal with everything that's necessary for getting a podcast out while being on holiday... Well, that just didn't work out, so I'm having to do it this week instead, um, which is going to be the sharing of another presentation by Dr. William Lane Craig, which he gave during our holiday in Israel a few years back, in 2011. Actually, that's several years ago now, isn't it? Um, So this is going to be the second of three of his presentations that I have up my sleeve. I shared the first a few weeks back, and as people told me they enjoyed that, I thought that I would share the second one now. But uh, more of that in a few minutes. I just wanted to say that people who are long-time listeners will know all about this, but I thought that for listeners to TMR who are new, I would explain, this is the kind of thing that I sometimes do during holiday periods. Each year it's just the same, the summer is uh, particularly chaotic for me, and uh, there's this general lack of routine, which means I can't settle down to making interview arrangements and appointments and spending designated slots editing and posting etc in the way that I normally can so uh, rather than put the podcast to sleep as I say for several weeks on end I like to do this sharing things of interest and concern it's good for me because it keeps me on my toes because it keeps uh, me thinking about the podcast and uh, hopefully it's good for you because maybe you get to hear something of interest which you might otherwise not hear And most importantly, you get to know that I'm still here and planning for the future of TMR. So that's essentially why I do this. Um, But before we get on to that, I do have a few things that I want to say. First is, I would like to draw your attention to a statement that was published a few days ago on the 30th of August by a group calling itself the Global Network for Syria. And this is entitled, Statement on Impending US, UK and French Military Intervention in Syria. And the first paragraph reads, quote, We, members of the Global Network for Syria, are deeply alarmed by recent statements by Western governments and officials threatening the government of Syria with military intervention and by media reports of actions taken by parties in Syria and by Western agencies in advance of such intervention, end quote. There's a lot more to this statement, and I'm going to read the whole thing in just a moment, but this has been signed by some eminent individuals, including, in fact, Lord Carey, that's George Carey, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, this came to me via email, um, indeed on the 30th of August itself, with a text, an accompanying text, apparently by Peter Ford. Um, the former UK ambassador to Syria who we spoke to a few weeks ago. It didn't come directly from him. Um, It was mailed around to various alternative media outlets. So I checked with Peter Ford to make sure this is in fact genuine. He got back to me saying, yes, it is genuine. So I immediately published it at TMR, and I see that other outlets have also published it, um, including here, 21st Century Wire. Um, And I think the hope is that this will be picked up by the mainstream and published, but I think they're not holding their breath on that. Um, But I think this is remarkable in that it is a statement of great concern about what's going on with respect to Syria and bringing up some issues that are considered to be taboo in the mainstream. And I am impressed by the fact that here are some 
really very eminent people who are putting their names to such concerns. So this is why I'm sharing it, actually. I so often talk on the podcast about the necessity of bringing the concerns that we share here in internet space out into the real world of conversation, the discourse of everyday life, um, because I think that's one of the main ways in which the power of propaganda can be broken. So I have great respect for these people making a statement like this and putting their names to it. So let me read this in full. Statement on impending US, UK and French military intervention in Syria. We, members of the Global Network for Syria, are deeply alarmed by recent statements by Western governments and officials threatening the government of Syria with military intervention, and by media reports of actions taken by parties in Syria and by Western agencies in advance of such intervention. In a joint statement issued on 21 August, the governments of the US, the UK and France said that, quote, We reaffirm our shared resolve to preventing the use of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime, and for holding them accountable for any such use. As we have demonstrated, we will respond appropriately to any further use of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime. End quote. The three governments justify this threat with reference to, quote, reports of a military offensive by the Syrian regime against civilians and civilian infrastructure in Idlib, unquote. On 22nd August, Mr. John Bolton, U.S. National Security Advisor, was reported by Bloomberg to have said that the U.S. was prepared to respond with greater force than it has used in Syria before. These threats need to be seen in the context of the following reports and considerations. Reports have appeared of activity by the White Helmets Group, or militants posing as White Helmets, consistent with an intention to stage a false flag chemical incident in order to provoke Western intervention. These activities have reportedly included the transfer of eight canisters of chlorine to a village near Jizra al-Shugur, excuse my pronunciation here, an area under the control of Hayat Tahrir Ash-Sham, an affiliate of the terrorist group Al-Nusra. Some reports refer to the involvement of British individuals and the Olive Security Company. Other reports indicate a build-up of US naval forces in the Gulf and of land forces in areas of Iraq joining the Syrian border. We therefore urge the US, UK and French governments to consider the following points before embarking on any military intervention. 1. In the cases of three of the previous incidents cited in the 21 August statement, Le Tamanar, Kanshekun, Sarakib, OPCW inspectors were not able to secure from the militants who controlled these areas security guarantees to enable them to visit the sites, yet still base their findings on evidence provided by militants. 2. In the case of Duma, also cited, the interim report of OPCW inspectors dated 6 July, based on a visit to the site, concluded that no evidence was found of the use of chemical weapons, and that evidence for the use of chlorine as a weapon was inconclusive. 3. Western governments themselves acknowledge that Idlib is controlled by radical Islamist extremists. The British government in its statement on 20 August justified its curtailment of aid programmes in Idlib on the grounds that conditions have become too difficult. Any action by the Syrian government would not be directed at harming civilians, but at removing these radical elements. 4. 
any military intervention without a mandate from the United Nations would be illegal. 5. Any military intervention would risk confrontation with a nuclear-armed co-member of the Security Council, as well as with the Islamic Republic of Iran, with consequent ramifications for regional as well as global security. 6. There is no plan in place to contain chaos in the event of sudden government collapse in Syria, such as might occur in the contingency of command and control centres being targeted. Heavy military intervention could result in the recrudescence of terrorist groups, genocide against the Alawite, Christian, Druze, Ismaili, Shiite and Armenian communities, and a tsunami of refugees into neighbouring countries and Europe. In the event of any incident involving the use of prohibited weapons, prior to taking any decision on military intervention, we urge the US, UK and French governments, one, to provide detailed and substantive evidence to prove that any apparent incident could not have been staged by a party wishing to bring Western powers into the conflict on their side. 2. To conduct emergency consultations with their respective legislative institutions to request an urgent mission by the OPCW to the site of any apparent incident and give time for this mission to be carried out. 3. To call on the government of Turkey which has military observation posts in Idlib to facilitate, in the event of an incident, an urgent mission by the OPCW to the jihadi-controlled area, along with observers from Russia to ensure impartiality. We further call on the tripartite powers to join Turkish and Russian efforts to head off confrontation between the Syrian government forces and the militants opposing them by separating the most radical organisations such as Hayat Tahrir ash-Sham and Huras ad-Din from the rest, eliminating them and facilitating negotiations between the Syrian government and elements willing to negotiate. Signed by Dr Tim Anderson, University of Sydney, Lord Carey of Clifton, crossbench member of the House of Lords and former Archbishop of Canterbury, the Baroness Cox, crossbench member of the House of Lords, Peter Ford, British Ambassador to Syria 2003-6, Dr Michael Langridge, former Bishop of Exeter, and Lord Stoddart of Swindon, independent Labour member of the House of Lords. That's the end of the statement. I think it's a remarkable statement because of some of the things it touches on. It touches on the possibility that there are people who are, as they say, posing as white helmets, who may be prepared to stage a false flag chemical incident in order to provoke Western intervention. Something that is considered to be um, unsayable in the mainstream. And later on, they say there needs to be evidence to prove that any apparent incident could not have been staged by a party wishing to bring Western powers into the conflict on their side. So there's both the concept there of the false flag attack and also the concept of the hoax, which I think is remarkable that here there are people as eminent as those I've just listed who are publicly saying such things. And I think that just in itself, from my perspective, I think is a very, very hopeful sign. Um, as I say, I think the hope is that this is going to be published in the mainstream somewhere. Whether that will happen, I don't know. But I, I very much wanted to draw your attention to that, and I hope that you will share that around. I don't mean this particular podcast, but I mean the document itself, which you will find at the TMR uh, website in the in the media section. Um, so that's a, a very positive development, I believe. 
The second thing is an item that I discovered at 911blogger.com, which I wanted to note, and that is a series of video presentations of Wayne Costa's epic analysis of the evidence at the Pentagon on 9-11. Apparently this uh, video PowerPoint presentation was originally 5 hours 40 minutes long, but it's now been broken down into an easily digestible chapter-by-chapter form of a whole series of uh, videos narrated by David Chandler, who is a very eminent 9-11 researcher. Um, you can find that via 9-11 Blogger itself or in the show notes to today's program. I have started to watch that. I haven't got time at the moment to watch all five hours plus of that. But as I say, I have started to watch it and I do find it impressive so far. It's very dry, very clinical, very uh, thorough in its presentation. But you know, I like that kind of thing because it's, uh, I feel that you're more likely to get to the truth if you approach things in a very methodical and thorough fashion. Um, so here's what it says about that. Wayne started this project when he was on the other side of the fence, convinced that no plane hit the Pentagon. He was working on a compilation to prove that case and ended up convincing himself otherwise. Anyone who snaps back with a dismissive response in the first 10 minutes has no business commenting. This represents a massive effort and deserves careful consideration and study. So... I invite you, if you do in fact have time and the inclination, to go and check that out and let me know what you think, because you may well end up watching the whole of that before I can get round to it. The third thing I wanted to mention was another 9-11 related thing, and that is an interview over at the Corbett Report, where James Corbett recently interviewed a chap called Mick Harrison, who's a member of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And he and his colleagues have uh, submitted a petition to the US Attorney in the Southern District of New York to convene a special grand jury into the unprosecuted federal crimes related to the destruction of the three World Trade Center towers on uh, September 11th, 2001. And it's a very interesting conversation. James talks to this chap about the petition they have submitted and the uh, legal mechanisms with respect to that and their hopes for that and the kind of evidence that they're presenting. And I think it's really interesting to keep tabs on, on what happens with that. Um, I'm cautiously excited by that development. So do go and listen to that particular interview. Of course, you'll find it at Corbett Report, but I will put a link into today's show notes as well. So those are the three things that I wanted to draw to your attention. Um, I will have a few more things to say at the end of today's program, but uh, let's turn back to the thing that I wanted to share with you today, which is this presentation by Dr. William Lane Craig, the second of three, as I say, and it's exclusive. As far as I know, nobody else recorded these, and I do have permission to share them from uh, William Lane Craig's organization called Reasonable Faith. And of course, I must add that William Lane Craig's words being included in this podcast in no way should be taken as suggesting that he endorses anything else that I've said in this particular podcast, or indeed anything else that appears at The Mind Renewed. Uh, his words and mine are completely separate in that sense. Now this one actually is not so much a presentation, it's really a Q&A. At a certain point during our time on that tour of Israel, Bill Craig decided to have a Q&A evening and I'm going to share part of that with you now. Um, you may find that not all of it is, not all of the questioners are easy to listen to because of course they were spread around a rather large hall, um, but I've done my best to try and make it audible and I have actually removed some of the names of people who are asking questions. Um, and I thought this is interesting because the Q&A just went anywhere 
I thought that it was going to be related to matters, you know, the specifics of the visit to Israel, but uh, it wasn't necessarily the case. It was open to anything. And so people asked questions about all kinds of aspects of his work. Um, so I thought this is interesting because if you are familiar with Bill Craig's work, you will easily connect with what these questions are and be interested in the answers that he gives. But if you're not familiar with his work, I think in the way he answers questions, he gives enough information to give a kind of taster as to the kind of work that he does in the area of Christian apologetics. So if you're not familiar with his work, maybe this will whet your appetite to go and check out more of his work, which you'll find at reasonablefaith.org. And Bill Craig has had a, a great influence upon me over the years and my understanding of Christian apologetics in particular, but also my Christian faith in general. So I'll have more to say at the end, but here it is for now, uh, a Q&A with Dr. William Lane Craig. All right, well, I'll start you off with a Kalam question. Okay. This has to do with, uh, in debating the topic, uh, after presenting the Kalam argument, a typical criticism is that this is a, um, now the term is uh, escaping me, the fallacy, um, special plea. So it's special pleading uh, that uh, God's the only thing that um, would fit the criteria, uh, the first criteria, um, that has a beginning, or does not have a beginning, and so you're special pleading. And then, you know, I, I know that you've recommended the answer would be, well, there can be such things as numbers and yeah. or um, propositions, I believe. And then typically the answer to that is, and they'll say, well, those things, you know, only exist in someone's mind. They don't exist independently of a, of a conscious mind, which I understand um, really fails to meet. The, right. That's actually my view. So I'm right. So that's, happy with that. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast. P so. or Q, not P, therefore Q. Right, right. Well, now, hang on. All right. I didn't get so, that. I didn't get that. All right. I've, I've never heard this objection before to the Kalam argument that it's special pleading. And the question was, isn't it sort of special pleading to say that God is the cause? Well, now, that seems to me to be just completely unjustified. The argument infers to a cause of the universe, right? It doesn't infer to God. It infers to a cause of the universe. Then what you begin to do is do a conceptual analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe. And a dramatic number of traditional divine attributes fall out. For example, this thing must be eternal. Indeed, it must be timeless since it created time and there can't be an infinite regress of events. It must be outside of space since it created space and everything in it. It must be changeless since there can't be an infinite regress of changes. So we've already got back to a being which is timeless, spaceless, and transcends the physical universe, uh, transcends space. And then I argue that it must be uh, beginningless because it never, it never began to exist. Uh, it must be immaterial because any material thing involves change, at least on the atomic and molecular levels, right? So this thing can't be a material object, besides it's beyond time and space. So it's got to be a beginningless, uncaused, it has to be uncaused because there can't be an infinite regress of causes, right? We already saw that. 
So it's got to be a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial cause of the universe. And it must be enormously powerful because it created the universe out of nothing. There, it, it didn't need a material cause. It brought all energy and matter into being. So what could such a thing be? Well, I give three arguments that this has to be a personal being. And the only thing that I know of metaphysically that philosophers have identified as could be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and changeless would either be an abstract object, like a number, or a set, or some sort of mathematical object. Those are typically thought to be beyond time and space and be immaterial and changeless. So that would fit the bill. Or it could be an unembodied mind. That is to say, a consciousness without a body. That's immaterial, right? It could also exist changelessly and therefore timelessly and spacelessly. But an abstract object doesn't stand in causal relations. That's part of the definition of what it means to be abstract. Numbers don't have any effects on anything. And if, as you said, these things aren't real, they just exist in your mind, then it follows immediately that the cause of the universe can't be an abstract object. So, if it's either P or Q, right, it's either an abstract object or it's an unembodied mind, and it's not P, it follows logically that it's Q, it's an unembodied mind or consciousness. And therefore, we are brought to a personal creator of the universe. And that's one of the three arguments I give for the personhood of the creator. So you don't have to call this being God if you don't want to. That's fine with me. But I think it does give you a beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, changeless, enormously powerful personal creator of the universe. You so, want to follow up? Well, yeah, I'm just trying to make clear. Uh, so, so, well, so the case, reason, let me just say one more thing. Sure. Now, you might quibble with some of those arguments, maybe. You might yeah. disagree. They, but they, it's certainly not special pleading. Right. Right. That's There's the no special pleading here. There are arguments. But, okay. it, but it's not special pleading because I'm, a, as, a, as a theist, I'm allowing for the possibility that there might be other things that have no beginning such as numbers, whereas, right, isn't that the reason that it's not, because the no, atheist no. is going to say, you're special pleading because only God fits the bill as this creator, and therefore it's special pleading. How is that? No, wait, I didn't See? infer that. What I said, it has to be an unembodied mind. Now, if there are no abstract objects, then there's no dilemma at all. Then, then you just simply say, the only thing that can fit that description is an unembodied mind and therefore there must be a personal creator. So I don't see that there's any special pleading at all. There, it, it's an argument for the existence of such a thing. Well, okay, I want to move on okay. to other folks. Okay. I was just wondering <clears throat> excuse me, if you could talk briefly about um, the first premise of the cosmological argument and then also quantum theory which seems to suggest that there is no perfect vacuum in a classic sense, that there's always, you know, never complete nothing, there's always something seeding at a, mm -hmm. a subatomic level. And I've heard criticisms of that level that there's, that there's never really nothing, so that they can get around the idea that from nothing, nothing comes, that there's always something happening. And okay, I, I, that's two different questions. The first question was, could I say something about the causal premise in the Kalam cosmological argument? 
the premise is that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now notice how that premise is carefully formulated. It doesn't say everything that exists has a cause, does it? It says everything that begins to exist has a cause. Things don't come into being caused out of nothing. Anything that comes into being must have a cause that brings it into being. Notice too that it doesn't say every event has a cause. This premise is perfectly consistent with there being uncaused events, like for example free choices by human beings, or uh, quantum events which could be indeterminate, like the decay of a subatomic isotope or the uh, some other quantum fluctuation, perfectly consistent with quantum indeterminacy uh, of events. So what it says is that things don't come into existence without a cause. And I give three reasons for that. First, I think that it's a metaphysical first principle that is intuitively obvious, that being doesn't come from non-being. To say that uh, things can come into being out of non-being is really worse than magic when you think about it. Because in magic, at least you've got the magician, right? Uh, and in this case, you just say, no, the things just pop into being out of nothingness, which is surely metaphysically absurd. So if that's the price of atheism, I say they're welcome to it. Now, the second one is that if things could come into being uncaused out of nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything and everything doesn't come into being out of nothing. Uncaused. Why do bicycles and Beethoven and root beer pop into being uncaused out of nothing? Why is it only universes? What makes nothingness so discriminatory? There can't be anything about nothingness that would favor universes because nothingness has no properties. It, right? It's not anything. And then the third reason is that this premise is constantly confirmed and never falsified in our experience. And so we have the best of experiential and scientific evidence for this principle. Now, your question was, but on the quantum physical level, the vacuum is never empty. In fact, in quantum physics, the vacuum is really a sea of energy, a roiling sea of energy, the arena of violent activity, and therefore not nothing. Indeed, it exists in space. And I say amen to that. And that's why people like Stephen Hawking in his book, The Grand Design, or Lawrence Krauss at Arizona State University are so terribly, terribly mistaken when they say that quantum physics has shown that the universe can come into being uncaused out of nothing. What they're using the word nothingness, therefore, is as a description of the quantum vacuum. And as you said, it's not nothing. It is a physical reality endowed with physical properties and having a, a physical structure. So this, honestly, is nothing but wordplay. In fact, I think it is a deliberate abuse of science because these men know better. They know the quantum vacuum is not nothing. And so for them to mislead innocent laymen by telling them that physics has shown that quantum physics shows how something can come out of nothing is, I think, a, a deliberate abuse of science. And if religious people did this, we would be denounced as deceivers or ignoramuses for saying such a thing. Now, all that needs to be added to this is that the quantum vacuum isn't past eternal. The, if you look at the evidence that I share in the books, the quantum vacuum itself cannot be extended infinitely into the past, but had an absolute beginning a finite time ago. And therefore, we're forced to ask the question, where did the quantum vacuum come from? What brought it into being? Um, all that physics does is explain how 
the physical universe can transition from a vacuum state to a material state, from something to something else, but it doesn't do anything to answer the fundamental question of the absolute beginning of all physical reality, space and time, matter and energy. Okay, some other question, yes? Recently, um, in your Defenders uh, class, uh, you've been explaining uh, why you're not an evidentialist and, and, yes. and how, how someone can have a, the witness of the Holy Spirit, for example, as, um, as a non-evidential certainty of God's presence, of God's reality, and, and et cetera. And in describing that, you, uh, as I recall, one of, one of the examples was say, say that you were someone who lived in Russia and, and you didn't have, uh, all you had was atheists that were countering oh, yeah. And, and you, you didn't really have the ability, uh, you didn't have the resources available to you uh, to counter that, but you knew in your heart that you know the, 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 you have the witness of the Spirit as, as, a, as an immediate right. uh, warrant uh, for your belief. Right. And then you said something that uh, confused me a little bit uh, in, in the podcast was that even if you couldn't, in that circumstance, even if you couldn't come up with a counter to that, uh, a defeater for for what an atheist might be saying, you would, even if you couldn't find a reason that would support your viewpoint, you would still know that it is, you know, the uh, the spirit is living in your heart. Right. And so I, I guess I was a little. Um, confused as to how does that square with following the evidence wherever it might lead? I don't think we should follow the evidence wherever it might lead. But that seems to be a... I'm not an evidentialist. Well, that's, that seems to be, though, something that, that's said very often. Yeah, I think it's a mistake. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, evidentialism is the view that belief in God or religious belief is only justified if you have adequate evidence for religious belief. And I think that's clearly wrong theologically. And Mark gives an illustration of this. I've met people in the former Soviet Union or in, in German liberal university faculties dominated by Bultmannian theology, people who had no access to evangelical scholarship or Christian materials. If they followed the evidence where it led, they would be led to atheism or apostasy. And I cannot persuade myself that it would ever be God's will that you should commit apostasy. And that's what some of these Lutheran kids who go off and study in Erlangen or Tübingen would have to do when they sit under these liberal theologians and they have no means of refuting them. If they followed the evidence where it leads, they would apostatize and throw Christ out of their lives. And I cannot believe that this would be God's intention for anyone. Think of a mentally retarded child who can't understand the evidence, or an illiterate peasant who has no library resources and can't even read. If he followed the evidence where it led, he would be an agnostic. He wouldn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There's got to be some other way of knowing that this is true. And when I open the pages of the New Testament, what do I find? Paul says, when the Spirit himself Bears, when we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and therefore joint heirs with Christ. And John, in 1 John, talks about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He says, you've all been anointed by the Spirit and you have no need to, for anyone to teach you 
because you already know the truth because his anointing abides with you and is in you and just as it has taught you abide in him so i think theologically we have every reason to think that god doesn't leave it up to us to work out by our own ingenuity and cleverness whether or not christianity is true uh, the sands of evidence shift from generation to generation, from place to place, depending on a person's education, mental ability, library resources. God isn't going to let people's salvation or damnation hinge on those kind of accidents. He has provided a universal means of knowing the gospel is true through the inner witness of his Holy Spirit. So someone like our Lutheran student in Erlangen or the guy growing up in the Soviet Union who only hears Marxist propaganda, he can know that that stuff is wrong, that it's false, even if he can't refute it. He, he doesn't have the means to refute the objections, but he knows they're wrong. And so I'm not an evidentialist. And uh, besides that, if you look at Reasonable Faith Chapter 1, there are philosophical objections to evidentialism as well. If uh, Plantinga shows that if you're only justified in believing what can be proved by evidence, we'll ultimately all be landed in skepticism. Because you couldn't even prove that you're here in Jerusalem. You couldn't prove that you're not a brain in a vat of chemicals being stimulated by a mad scientist to believe that you're here in this room listening to this lecture, uh, when in fact you're nothing but a brain uh, wired up with electrodes. Uh, so the evidentialism, I think, is, is bankrupt epistemology, and it's theologically unacceptable, too. So, so we should avoid the phrase, all the evidence, wherever it leads? Yes, I think we should avoid that, Mark. I think that's dishonest to tell unbelievers, follow the evidence where it leads. What I tell an unbeliever is, I've got good arguments for this, uh, and I think that the evidence supports it, and here's the evidence. So if he says there's no evidence for God, say, really? Is that what you think? I can think of at least five arguments for God's existence. And then he's got to ask you, well, what are they? And bam, you're off and running. So just tell him there's good evidence to believe that God exists, or there's good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes? I'm glad you brought up the mad scientist, because that was going to be my question to you. Can you maybe say a few words on the confidence that we have that we're not or maybe some confidence that we have. We're not in a, a vat of chemicals. We're not a part of the matrix. The yeah. world didn't just start five minutes ago. We've been yeah, well, I think what epistemologists would say is that these are properly basic beliefs. They can't be proven, but nevertheless, you are perfectly rational to hold them unless and until you have some overriding defeater that would give you reason to think that, say, you are a brain in a vat or that the world was created five minutes ago. And in the absence of such a defeater, you are perfectly rational to go with what your experience seems to tell you um, as a kind of properly basic belief. So just to say, well, what about this? That's really not enough. That's, that's not, right. That's it's, this is what the unbeliever so often does. He just throws out possibilities. Right. It's possible you're a body in the matrix, you know, or it's possible the world was created five minutes ago. Sure. So what? Right. right. That, that doesn't show anything. It doesn't get you out of any... No, it that doesn't provide a defeater for my belief that the, the world has a genuine age. Um, these are properly basic beliefs which are grounded in my experience, but they're not beliefs that we infer on the basis of evidence. And as I say, the person who denies that is going to find himself ground down into skepticism because 
these are the most basic kinds of beliefs that we hold. Yes? My understanding is you <coughs> use the um, Big Bang mm -hmm. theory as one of your supporting arguments. Right. How do you respond to the young Earth critics? Um, yeah, I, I don't respond to them <laughs> because um, I'm interested in dialoguing with unbelievers and secularists and I'm, I don't want to spend my time fighting battles with brethren over these issues. What I will say to someone who asks about it is that I think, and I really do sincerely believe this, I think that the first chapter of Genesis permits a wide range of interpretations that are open to the Bible-believing Christian, including literal six-day, 24-hour creationism, but also including other views as well. I taught a course at Westmont College years ago on doctrine of creation that took me into the commentaries and into the Hebrew text, and the more I studied that text, the more confused I became and less certain of what it really says. It is so subtle and artistically uh, structured that I think it's very naive to say that the only biblically acceptable interpretation of that text is literal and 24-hour, uh, six-day creationism. Therefore, I think there's a wide range of views that a biblical, uh, biblically faithful Christian has open to him. Yes? Um, the past century or so in science has been heavily influenced by atheism, and for sure it's structured the various theories and models in physics to a certain direction uh, that exclude, you know, some type of cause or, or some type of explanation that's theistic. I'm curious to know if you could comment on uh, any current physicists who are actually, they don't get the airtime maybe as much as they should because they maybe are theists to some degree, but they're developing theories in physics that do point in some way to a theistic uh, support system that atheists seem to try to suppress all the time. Okay, now the question of whether a sort of theistic science is possible and doable, and I, I'm not sure I would agree with what you said about science being atheistic. I understand atheism to be the view that God does not exist. I would prefer to say that science is just agnostic about God, that it doesn't deal with supernatural hypotheses. The project of science is to figure out what are the best natural explanations of these things, and that it can pursue that project without bringing God into the picture. And I think this has to do with science's banning or ignoring final causes in favor of just efficient causes. It doesn't ask why things happen in the sense of purpose or, or goal. And not having that project makes science, I think, sort of theologically neutral or agnostic. My inclination as, as a philosopher is to say that what science can do is that it can furnish evidence for a premise in an argument leading to a conclusion that has theological significance. Science can give evidence for a premise in an argument leading to a conclusion of theological significance. For example, science can provide evidence for the premise the universe began to exist. Now that's a religiously neutral statement that 
presupposes nothing about God. It can be found in any textbook on astronomy and astrophysics. And yet, that can be a premise in an argument to a conclusion that then does have theological significance. Or take the premise, the fine-tuning of the universe is not due to physical necessity or to chance. That, again, is a religiously neutral statement to which scientific evidence is relevant. And indeed, I think scientific evidence can suggest that premise is true, that fine-tuning is not best explained by chance or physical necessity. Now, that then can be a premise in an argument to a designer of the universe. But there, the inference to God or a designer is a philosophical inference. The science is only doing the support of the religiously neutral premise. Do you see the point? And therefore, you can't be accused of God of the gaps reasoning, which is the, the accusation always hurled against the one who wants to do theistic science. Uh, how, why do you appeal to God of the gaps? In this case, you're not using the scientific evidence for God. You're using it for religiously neutral statements, which are premises in an argument for a conclusion having theological significance. So I'm open to the project of people like William Dembski and Steve Meyer and Michael B. Who, who want to have a theistic science. But I think that the relevance of science for theism isn't exhausted by the project of theistic science. I think you can allow science to be theologically neutral. And yet, science can still be very, very helpful in furnishing evidence for premises in arguments to conclusions having theistic significance. Okay, maybe we'll take one more okay. question and then we'll can, draw to Can you elaborate on that just a little bit more? Because I didn't quite understand the um, intelligent design argument seems to be saying that, I mean, I don't know how you can state that in a way that would, that would not be generally assumed to be theistic. All right, the question was, uh, how could you state a fine-tuning argument that wouldn't be theistic? No, no, no not fine-tuning, the intelligent design. Well, oh, all right, intelligent yeah. design. The fine-tuning argument is an example of an intelligent design argument. It just appeals to cosmic design rather than biological examples of design. Rather than appealing to biological examples of design, it doesn't end-run around biological evolution and goes back to the initial conditions of the universe. And an argument like this, uh, for, or of this sort, would go as follows. Um, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Premise two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. And the scientific evidence would only be a matter of the second premise. You would disqualify chance and physical necessity on the basis of scientific evidence. But the whole argument is a philosophical argument. It's not an argument that would be pressed in a scientific journal. This would be an argument that a philosopher would offer in a philosophy journal for a cosmic designer. Okay. I hope that's clear. Okay. Well, it does seem, from what I've seen in quotes in literature and so forth, about scientists being driven by their atheism and, you know, Aldous Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, says, I want this world not to have me yes. because it frees me to my own erotic pursuits. Dawkins said that he was convinced of, he said that his his belief in, in Darwinism and evolution led him to atheism. 
And there's another astrophysicist, I can't think of who he is, who says we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Yeah, Richard Lewontin. Lewontin, okay. And there's one more quote by another uh, astronomer. He says, maybe perhaps the, the biggest evidence that the Big Bang points to a creator is, is the obvious discomfort which, which so many astronomers <laughs> receive. Yeah. Right. Christopher so, Isham. Okay, so Said good, that. good, thanks. I had these written down, but yeah. that's why I'm asking. Yeah, don't you, okay, don't confuse the personal motivations of some scientists with the project of science itself. People have all kinds of personal motivations. Some scientists might be motivated by greed or by a, 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 an egomaniac, maniacal quest for fame. In fact, I, I, one scientist once remarked to me that science is wonderful because the uh, scientific progress nicely coincides with egotistical self-interest. Uh, you know, the better work you do, the bigger name you are, but it advances the discipline as well. So scientists can have all kinds of personal motivations but that doesn't mean that science itself is inherently anti-theistic. On the contrary, there are lots of people who are Christians doing science, who have, yeah, Christian motivations, and they can adopt many of the same theories, and, and do adopt many of the same theories. So we, we've got to be very careful about sort of characterizing the discipline or the field of natural science because of these personal motivations of some scientists, which are certainly, as you said, in some cases, anti-theistic. That's true. I hear what you're saying. I yeah. was thinking that, I mean, I, I believe that science and theology can be totally enmeshed. In fact, wasn't theology, theology considered the queen of the sciences? Yes, yeah, that's right. It was the, but it's just, I see so many of the motivations of these people, they're thinking, well, it's... That, that, that's a fringe. Yeah, I, I think fringe. it is too. And oh, if, okay, if, well, if, if you look in, in terms of any of the, the surveys that have been done, there is still a, a sizable fraction. It may not be a majority, and certainly not a majority in some areas. There's a sizable fraction of scientists who are people of faith, some of them very traditional people of faith. Lawrence, I would say Lawrence is on the fringe. He's talking about Lawrence Krauss, yeah, his well, colleague yeah, at uh, ASU. I would say he's on the fringe of my yeah. own department. Yeah. yeah so surveys that have been done in general will just show that, again, a significant fraction of scientists are, are people of faith. Yeah, I mean, just think of the typical scientist working, you know, uh, he's maybe an undistinguished laboratory scientist or, or theorist. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that some of those who write the books and get the publicity are those that are, you know, motivated by these anti-theistic uh, concerns. But we shouldn't paint with too broad a brush here. All right, well, I want to draw to a close now uh, so that we'll all get to bed at a, at a good hour. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed the interaction this evening. Okay, well, I hope you found that interesting to listen to. I know I do. Uh, perhaps I'm strange, but I like Q&As, actually. One of the things I really like about uh, Mike Heiser's, Dr. Michael Heiser's podcast, is that occasionally he does a whole podcast, which is just Q&A, answering uh, listeners' questions. I like that sort of thing, so I hope that you enjoyed that. If you're familiar, as I say, with Bill Craig's work, um, you will have easily picked up on the kinds of things being talked about there. But if you're not, then hopefully that will give you some impetus there, some encouragement there to go and check out his work, which, as I said, you'll find at Reasonable Faith. Dot org. So that is essentially it for this week. I may 
publish something next week. I have a thought up my sleeve, whether I will do that or not. I don't know at the moment, but as I always say, there are interviews in the pipeline. Um, we will be speaking very soon to Professor Edgar Andrews, Emeritus Professor of Material Science at the University of London. He came on in the early days of the podcast to talk about his book, Who Made God? Searching for a Theory of Everything. He's joining us again now, a couple of weeks from now or so, to talk about his new book, What is Man? We're also going to be joined again by our good friend, Anthony Rattu, know who we have conversations with every now and again um this time we're going to be talking about a documentary by adam curtis with the very strange title of hyper normalization it is a strange documentary and we have quite a bit of criticism of that documentary because it seems uh, quite bitty not sure we're convinced by the overall narrative of it but it has a lot of interesting subjects that it touches upon and that's why we want to talk about that. So that's going to be a conversation with Anthony Rotuno. We'll also be talking again to John Booth, who came on in 2016 to discuss his brilliant article, I think, called 15 Years On from 9-11. This time we're going to be talking about the alleged suicide of British weapons expert Dr. David Kelly. And we might just possibly be talking to Richard Swinburne, who is an eminent and retired philosopher of religion, who was indeed a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. Um, that's not secure, but um, I'm hoping we will be having that conversation. And as I always say, other things in the pipeline, which I'm not going to mention because they're not secure enough to mention at the moment, but hopefully they will transpire in due course. So again, I do apologise for this podcast coming out late. Um, I may have something to publish next week, which will not be the third instalment of the Bill Craig series here, but um, I'm not going to promise that because I don't know what's happening and um, I have yet more thoughts brewing about it. So there may be a podcast next week, otherwise it'll be probably a week after that. Trying here to get back to that fortnightly pattern that I seem to have established since the birth of our second child. Um, so as I say, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your messages and uh, for your support. And thank you for a couple of people who have given a rating to TMR on iTunes. I have noticed a couple of people in the United States did that. Always a boost to see that kind of thing happening. It's been a long time since anybody has done that. So thank you very much for adding your opinion to TMR. Um, so if there's anybody else out there who uses iTunes and you are inclined to give a, well, a good review. Um, if you don't want to give a good review, then don't bother, hey? <laughs> no, if you want to do that, then please do. It's always a great boost to receive things like that. So I shall sign off now. I wish you well. Thank you for listening. I hope to speak next week, and if not, um, before too long. You have been listening to Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>